0: Good morning, everybody. Glad that you guys have joined us today. Like Corey said, we're wrapping up our series called Tensions. I'm Austin. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, We've been talking through this series, and the whole idea of it is fairly straightforward and fairly simple. Uh, The idea of tensions is that you have two things that we often think are opposed to one another, but in reality, the best understanding shouldn't be that these are against each other, but those two things work together. So we talk about stuff like faith and doubt, and we talk about all sorts of different things like, uh, for example, God has ideals, and then the fact that we're all messed up. And what happens is, like, if we get this, uh, if we don't wrestle with the tension of that, we have to think that, well, God has ideals, and because God has ideals, and I'm a failure, therefore I, I can't live into God's life, the life that God wants me to live in. And so you give up. And depending on what church you come from, what kind of background you come from, if you don't come from a very gracious background, they might agree and say, yeah, you're too big of a screw up. You can't be here. You can't be a part of what we're doing as a church, which is brutal. So you think, well, sure, God has ideals, but in my failures, I've noticed that God actually teaches me how to continue to fulfill and meet his ideals, In fact, when you pick up your Bible, you can't read more than a couple of uh, pages before you're finding people who uh, are trying to follow after God's ideals, but then screw up royally. And then what happens is they come right back around. God is always using people who are failures and who make mistakes constantly. And that's a good thing. And so, so as we talk about tensions, we're not talking about just saying, well, God has ideals. You're a screw up. Therefore, you can't be it. No, no, no. There's a tension here. That God has ideals. We're all screw-ups. We all make mistakes. However, the best thing that we can see that happens is God always invites us back in. And he invites us to continue moving forward and to take the next step. And that's the idea behind this uh, uh, series of tensions, is that it's not necessarily one or the other, but it tends to be both working together for something good. So today, we're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about it in kind of a different way. If, if I'm successful today, then my hope is, is that you have a little bit more of an adult understanding of how to read the Bible and how to understand some of the things that you see in the Bible that don't quite match up to maybe a 21st century sophisticated mindset. So what uh, we're going to be going through is we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can always flip over to it, but you don't have to because we'll have it on the screen here in a moment. Uh, but as as we go through this, we're going to see that uh, as you go, I- anytime you pick up the Bible, it is this ancient book. It's from, you know, 2,000 years ago. It's, it's old. And so it says things in it that you look at and you're like, oh, man, that doesn't make much sense considering what I understand about things today. And so you say, tend to say, okay, well, then there's this other side, which is, Well, I'm a modern, enlightened reader. I don't really believe stuff from thousands upon thousands of years ago. And you can see, okay, there's a threat. Is that going to make us stronger that that you have this ancient book and a contemporary mindset? Is that going to threaten truth? Or could our modern mindset actually help us understand what God might be doing when we pick up the Bible and read it, it's not just something as simple as just saying, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It's a lot more complex than that because any you pick up the Bible, you interpret it. Anytime you read the Bible, you interpret it. Everybody does. You do, I do, everybody does this act of reading into it things that, well, it might say, Or it might not say. And depending on the translation of it, it might say something more harsh or less harsh or good or might take it in a bad way. I don't know. But whenever we pick up the Bible, we we have to interpret it in some way. And so the question is, is our interpretation helpful or does it actually set us back? And so as we get into this, we're going to be looking at, and our little muse is going to be something that was happening uh, back in the first century in Colossians chapter 3. Here's what Paul wrote. I'm just going to read you the Bible, okay? You guys okay with that? Just read it to you, and it's just going to say what it says, and we're just going to go and do, all right? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. All right? Pray, wrap it up, we get it? You can see there's something here, and and if you're a skeptic at all, if you're somebody who uh, might be, you you don't consider yourself a Christian, and I see this stuff happen all the time, uh, that people that don't really understand how the Bible works and what's going on in the Bible, they'll pull out chunks of it, and they'll just lob it out there and say, well, the Bible says that, do you believe that? Oh, the Bible says this, do you believe this? And you look at it like, "Ah, I don't think that's... That's not how we use the Bible. That's not how the Bible like, works. You know, it's, it's not a proof text or a, a textbook of sorts. Rather, it's kind of this document that takes a little bit of time and understanding. But you have one side that says, well, the Bible says it. I believe it. that settles it. So why submit to your husbands? Then you have the other side that says, how dare he write that? I'm not following that at all. And and then we're over here and we're like, hold on. I think that you're both getting the wrong idea. I think that there is power in that message that he has there. And so that's what we're going to use to find how to faithfully follow God here. And we're going to get into this a little bit more. And here's again, here's my goal, is for us to become more faithful followers of Jesus I say this a lot, that I think that one of my jobs as a pastor is to help you be able to read and understand the Bible better and better, so that when you pick it up, it's not just a confusing document, but, okay, I understand this a little bit more. Oh, I think this reminds me of something that I learned when we, okay, great. So that's one of my goals here today. So let's dig into a little bit more of what this says. Here's a larger context for it. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, for they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, there are many parts of the Bible that talk about this kind of stuff that, that read like this. You got Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 2, you got 1 Peter 2, and lots of other stuff, places where the, the, the apparently this child does not know how to listen, um, you guys, as unto the Lord, okay, guys, uh, come on, <laughs> I'm kidding, that's a wonderful thing, may it happen more. Uh, no, what, what we see is that this is one of the things that happens throughout the Bible, is that, hey, here's how, to, here's how to live as a family. And it starts as a family, and of course it goes all the way up to adults and to running a nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And so we see how the, the microcosm of how you might relate to your spouse or how you might relate to your kids or even to the person that lives across the street from you, how those small little things expand up into the big stuff. And today we're really drilling into that small granular part of the family. Now here's uh, how this kind of works. Back in Paul's time, lots of philosophers, lots of people taught things like this. They said, hey, here's the order of stuff. And this is generally how society works. You had at the top men. Then second tier were women, third tier were children, fourth tier were slaves. And it was just a given fact that men were objectively better than women. They all believed it. Don't laugh. It's it's true, right? Or at least they thought it was true, okay? You'll see where this is going here. Um, And all the way down to where the last one on the totem pole was a slave. A slave was... Eh, Yeah, above a dog, most of the time, you could do what you wanted with a slave, kind of the same way you can do what you want with a dog, I guess now, you can kill it if you want, and I don't know how much trouble you get in, I'm not recommending that, I'm just saying, it's the way that people approached certain matters. And so you have men, women, children, and then you have uh, this guy, his name's Aristotle, he's an old philosopher, he came centuries before Jesus and Paul and the church, and he wrote, and he wrote actually quite a bit about how family dynamics should work, how things should be uh, put into their place. And so, he believed that men were better because they were better at commanding, and women were inferior because they were better at obeying. <sighs> My wife uh, did not get that memo. Um, I ran that joke by my wife to make sure she was okay with it, and she said, yes, it's okay, so everything's okay, okay? We're good. Uh, children regarded less than, uh, less than women. You know, in, in our time, we treat children like they're these wonderful little things. And, and they are. They are. I have three little ones. We coddle them. And when you see a kid, you think, you think man, what a bright future. And we talk all the time and in politics and around the world. like We want to create a better place for our kids because we value our kids. And that's nice you, it, for you and me. When we see a child we tend to think of something pretty positive and hopeful, future-oriented. That's nice, but when a first-century person saw a child, when Paul saw a child, when any of the people in this church saw a child, their culture was different they saw this little thing that you know, had a runny nose and got everybody sick, was dirty, and didn't do a very good job when they did the dishes, but you're trying to teach them to do the dishes and, and to do all these other things because they're little chore mongers is all that they are. They're not really beloved creatures, and that's one of the things that makes what Jesus did so radical when he said, let the children come unto me. Oh, wait, Jesus you know, like, this is the third tier. And of course, Jesus knew this is Roman-occupied Israel. Jesus knew he's basically in, in Rome. He is in Rome. Uh, he knew what the sentiments were toward children, but he didn't follow it. He said, hey, hey, hey no, 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 these, these kids have dignity. So I just don't want to underplay how important this change is, is that we have a certain view of when we see a kid, we just, things just kind of go into your mind, into your heart. In the first century, they did not have that at all. Kids had a totally different value. And then you get into slaves. Slaves were nothing. They were just, they had a job. They had a, uh, a thing that they were supposed to, a mission they were supposed to execute. And that's it. You have a role to play here. That's what they thought. In fact, here's what Aristotle uh, wrote. He considered his views to be purely based on grounds, both of reason and of fact. It is objectively true, he would say. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, right? Others for rule. Again, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, and the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. Now, my hope is, and I feel like this is a safe place to say this, that you read that, you see that, and you think, ooh, that doesn't feel quite right. That's not the that's not the society we live in. And you find that a little grotesque even, the way that if you can think of all of the myriad ways that that gets misapplied and put to practice in just for pure evil. That's all true. But here's just one I want to point out. You don't believe that because of some objective understanding, some empirical truth that you discovered. You don't believe that even because of an empirical truth that anybody else discovered. Nobody drilled into a human and, you know, wrestled around in their open chest and found, like, this little nugget that says soul on it. And they said, ah, there it is. Uh, that, That means that person has dignity, and we shouldn't subject this person. In fact, we shouldn't. Every human has that little thing, that little brain nodule or whatever. That's not a thing. You don't believe that Aristotle's wrong there because you are an enlightened modern person. You believe that because of Jesus. You believe that because of how Paul understood Jesus and how the early church formed itself to be the hands and feet of Christ to the first century, second century, third century, and it expanded on out to even make its way into our very ideals to where what we understand and how we understand this world is through Jesus. That's the only reason that you can look at something that Aristotle says and say, yeah, that that feels bad and that feels icky. Well, it's because of Jesus. Again, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's because of him that you even have that kind of a mindset. Christians were the first ones to put the end to slavery, to say that as an institution, it is inherently flawed and evil. This is what Jesus does, is he's constantly at work, uprooting ideologies all around. And that's true not just of cultures back in the first century and onward. It's not like, you know, you get to 2022 and, hey, we don't have any issues here. Like, Jesus, you know, come on back because we prepared you a seat. Everything's exactly how you want it. That's not the case either. In fact, if the way of Jesus is true, then I have a feeling, knowing how humans work, that his work will never be done. In fact, that's what Jesus is talking about a lot when he talks about, hey, my kingdom come, my will be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, God's kingdom being done, God's will being done on this earth. Of course, that assumes that there are times that God's will is not done on this earth. And the tension that we live in is that tension right there, one where we have the realities of today, but we hold that intention with the hope of tomorrow. That you have all the stuff that you walked in here, that you carried in here today, that it might be heavy, it might be light, I don't know. But you have a hope for tomorrow, a goodness for tomorrow, to say, ah, maybe it'll be better tomorrow. In fact, maybe it'll be a bit better a year from now. Maybe God will show me how I can continue to follow him more closely. So, if you go into the first century and you go up to a woman, you're in the marketplace You go to a woman and you say, hey, you should be treated as a complete equal with men. You know what she would do? She'd look at you and laugh. You think that's how this world works? No, 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 no. I mean, she might deep down like agree, but like she just also understands that that's not how the world works back then because in the first century, they were viewed in a different kind of a way. Now, You might be wondering, Austin, why are you going to all these background details? And as I was writing this sermon, I'll be honest with you, I was like, gosh, this is a lot of background stuff. I like to put things in sermons that kind of cut it up a little bit. I like to put like funny little jokes and, you know, a little thing, a video, a slide, or a little anecdote here or there to put a smile on your face and make it not feel like just a long, boring lecture sermon, whatever you want to call it. (sighs) But I don't have anything for today. And so I was like, okay, I'll just tell them that I don't have anything. I'll get a little laugh like I just got, and that'll operate as the thing, all right? So that was your little break right there. You got to laugh a little bit. Now we're going to keep going. Um, you're welcome. Now you get a little peek about like, what it's like to write like, 45 sermons a year. Uh, you run out of ideas sometimes, and that was, that was the best one I had uh, for today. But here's the point of this. When you read the Bible as a kid, you kind of have one understanding. Then when you turn around and read it as an adult, you see things differently. And we understand this like like kids have these concrete minds, right, Sarah? Like they they think very strict and linear and like A, B, C, D, or one plus one equals, and, and all of life is like that for them. And that's why when you're a kid and something happens that you, you know, like let's say you lose a a grandparent uh, that you weren't expecting to lose because you were in fifth grade or something, it's this disorienting thing because you're like, wait a second, people die? You understood that people died. Of course you understood, like in one way. But then when it happens to you, it it just hits different, right? Because we're such concrete thinkers on, on things. And that's how everybody is as they grow up. But later on, you develop the ability to think more abstractly. So when you think abstractly, you can think more conceptually all that. When we grow up, we're taught the Bible. If you grew up in the church, you're given some verses to memorize, the books of the Bible, all that stuff. And that's all wonderful and good and true. But then you read something and you're like, hold on, this doesn't... Like, I read Proverbs, and it said that if I raise my kids a particular way, they won't walk away. I raised my kids in that particular way, yet they walked away. So does that mean the Bible's not true? Oh, so you think that that was a bunch of promises. You thought that the Bible was a formula on how to raise your kids, or how to get wealthy, or how to be comfortable, or how to anything like that. And that causes some disorientation, because a lot of times people think, well, this is how the Bible's supposed to work. We're such concrete thinkers. Now, we're not like that in the rest of our lives. We grow up in many other ways. We learn how relationships work, especially if you've been married or anything. You see how how difficult some of this stuff can be at times, or if you're at a job for a long time with a stressful boss or something. Like, life is difficult, and it's complex, and it's really just nice and simple, straightforward. Just do what you need to do and go home. There's a lot more nuance there. And when you pick up your Bible, it's the same way. You're going to find some stuff here, and you're going to see that, hold on, it doesn't seem, I know what Paul says here, but he doesn't outright condemn slavery. You're right, because he's a first century dude. Nobody condemned slavery as an institution in the first century. Nobody did. First person to do it was in the fourth century, and he's a Christian. Did it for Christian reasons. Well, how do we understand that then? How do we understand? Well, if you were here for last week, we talked about Philemon, we talked about Onesimus and Paul. Philemon's a slave owner. Onesimus is the slave, and uh, he runs away. And when Onesimus comes back, Philemon has a choice of what to do. He could more or less kill him. He could do all sorts of mean things to him on the spot. But of course, there's a petition that Paul says, "Hey, Onesimus, he's no longer a slave." to you. You have these four categories, men, women, children, slaves. He's no longer the lowest one. He's no longer down here on the bottom. Rather, I want you to treat him like he is your brother, like he is your equal. And that, to a first century person, is disgusting. It doesn't make any sense. Yet Paul makes this petition and it's beautiful and it's stirring and it says all of the good things about the gospel right there of, oh yes, this is what Jesus has done, has done for our world, this is what he's done in my life, this is what Jesus does. And we look at that we say, this is nice, but he still doesn't just say, therefore slavery is wrong. He doesn't say that because he's still a product of his time. So when we get to something that says, wives, submit to your husbands best thing we can do is understand it in its proper context that will help us find what paul is actually trying to say and what we do when we do this is we'll find something pretty revolutionary about where paul is going with this whole organizing your family thing he treats obligations to the wife and this is one of the revolutionary bits of it as if it's equal to the obligations of the husband this is what you see in verse 18 19. It says, wives do this, husbands do that. And that's totally different than what Aristotle or Heracles or anybody else who wrote about all of these family dynamics and how they should pan out because the husband's on top, women, children, and slaves. Paul writes it, and he writes in a totally different way. In fact, here's what he writes in Galatians chapter 3, one of the most powerful passages. There's neither Jew or Gentile, no racial distinction, slave or free, No economic distinction. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not that there's no differences. We understand that. It's that when God looks at you and when you look at each other, you don't say, ah, you're a woman, therefore I should not listen to you. Oh, you're a kid, therefore you have nothing important to add to this. No, we don't dismiss anybody. We say all are one in Christ Jesus. And that's true for children, slaves, on how they're to live in the home. There's a mutuality is kind of the key word, the word of the day here. There's a mutuality that Paul has. And he doesn't come out and he doesn't just outright condemn the social order of his day. But he does create an understanding that if you hold true to this understanding, the social order in a Christian house is going to look totally different. Totally different than what any of these pagan houses look like. So when we look at Paul's writing and what he's doing time and again, we see what Paul says is here's how to think through it. You have your ways of living, he says. You have your Aristotelian hierarchies. You have all of these things, these ways of understanding society. Let me show you a better picture of how the world could work. I'm not just going to write against it. I'm going to actually just set that to the side and say, here's how it's going to be with us with followers of Jesus. So he shows them a better picture, one where slaves are brothers. So, verse 18 again. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Notice, he does not subordinate himself as the other philosophers do in his day. He does not subordinate the women. He does not say, "Uh, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you, which is how all the other authors write. Husbands, make sure it's your job to put your thumb down and make sure she pays attention. No, 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 no. He backs up. He first talks straight to the women, which is something you did not do back then. And then he says, it's your job, not your husband's job, to hold yourself in check. Now there's that word submit. And now to us, that word submit, (sighs) Probably has like a little bit of a doormat kind of a connotation, right? Like I'm suppo- I'm just supposed to lay down and like let him just walk all over me. Like is that what this means? It means that I'm not allowed a voice or anything. No, 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 no. In in the Bible, and this is going to get a little theological and it's going to get mysterious, and I'll shut it off when it gets too deep, uh, which won't take long. In the Bible, we through scripture we understand God as Trinity. God as triune: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father is not the most important. Son is not the most important. Holy Spirit is not the most important. All three together are equally and mutually important. That's how they were. That's how the Trinity works together. It's not a hierarchy of any kind. The Son relates to the Father, however, by submitting to the Father. Hold on. Jesus submits to the Father. But does that mean that there's a hierarchy? Again, no. Well, then how do we understand that? Well, we understand that through kind of the lens of mutuality, that the son is willing to do what the father wants, and the father won't want anything the son won't want, and on and on and on that goes. And so, the same language that is used to describe Jesus, the son's relationship to the father, is the language that Paul is using here to talk about how the wife should relate to her husband. It is not fundamentally hierarchical. It can't be in that way because it's tied in to the way that the Trinity works. So that's where, you know, it's kind of mysterious. It's, if you're like, ah, oh, I have a lot more questions, great. There's a lot of us do. But uh, that's kind of the gist, theologically, as you look into this, is you see that connection there. Oh, this isn't about lording over some power, some sort of authority structure, some sort of thing that we often read into this. Rather, this is about mutuality. So he talks to the women, he gives them agency, he says submission, but submission is not a doormat kind of a thing, that's often what we read when we read into it. Rather, submission is a mutual thing that is done. The relationship is played on the same level, and then in the very next verse, he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There's a mutuality here. This means the husband is not supposed to just go off and do his own thing. Rather, the husband loves his wife. That's how this works. Now, this does not happen because the husband is just supposed to muster up some good will in his heart and feel better about things. This happens because of Jesus It's because of Jesus that any of this is even possible. That this new way of seeing things in the first century is even possible. But there's something that you probably missed when we read that passage the first time. I'll point it out. As is fitting to the Lord. Submit as is fitting to the Lord. For this pleases the Lord in verse 20. Verse 22. With sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. The thing that makes all of this important, the only thing that that makes sense out of this, is if we appeal to the one authority that we really have, who does Paul think that is? The Lord as is fitting to the Lord, for this pleases the Lord with uh, sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. He asks wives to submit in the same way that they submit to the lordship of Jesus, in the same way the husbands submit to the lordship of Jesus. And although the words might be different in how he addresses it, the point is well taken. This is not just for women to submit to. This is for us to submit to in one another. A healthy relationship looks a lot like God interacting with us. And it starts there and extends out into our economic lives. It extends out into our social lives. In fact, the way of Jesus is not something that you can say, oh, I'll follow Jesus in this part of my life, but in this other part of my life, uh, I'm going to kind of operate in some other ways that will help me be more successful, let's say, in business or something else. No, no, no. The way of Jesus is all. It is everything there. So here's where we go with this. The way of Jesus gives us a better picture of how the world could be. The way of Jesus gives us a better picture of how the world could be. Last week we talked about this idea of uh, slavery and Onesimus and Philemon and how that relationship got completely transformed. So you want to know how the world could be? Well, it looks like a guy who was enslaved, a guy who was at the bottom of the totem pole, all of a sudden being raised, and not one notch up to being a child, and not even two notches up to be maybe equal status as a woman. No, no, no. All the way back up to be equal with the man who claimed ownership of him. That does not happen without Jesus. That does not happen unless Jesus gives us this kind of a picture. And Paul brings this and he takes it into our homes. He talks about it in this more granular way. When it's brought into the home, it's harder to shirk responsibility because now you know who the people are. There's a face and a name to the people that you are to submit to, that you are supposed to love and love well as Jesus would. So this is mutual love and mutual respect, and it goes all the way out to children, of course, slaves as well. Or you might think even uh, in society today, uh, we don't have the same kind of slavery Uh, We don't have institutionalized or legal slavery, that's for sure, but maybe you think of the poor and the marginalized, or you can maybe find a correlation there. But if the best argument that you have in your home, like let's say to your kids, for them to respect you is to throw some Bible verses at them, that's not going to last very long right? If the best argument you have to your husband, to your wife, if the best argument you have to friends, to family, for them to be respectful of you is to try to just lob out some Bible verses, that gets the wrong idea. Rather, what we see is we see that Jesus says, uh, Paul says through the way of Jesus, that we are to have this mutuality. That as you, and this is what we hope for our kids, that as you raise your kids, whether you're married, single, or not, or whatever else, uh, as we raise our kids we want them to see the way that we have relationships and we want them to take cues off of us. And that's hard because that means if I'm disrespectful to my spouse, my kids are going to pick that up too, aren't they? Well, then all of a sudden they're going to be learning these in the same way. It's like that with at work, it's like that with our friends, like anybody. We see this modeled in our homes. And when we see this modeled properly in our homes, then we understand, oh, okay, this is what Jesus is talking about in mutuality. It means I'm not supposed to always get my way, but rather I'm to seek the good of the other person. Okay. And when you do that, you see that the way of Jesus gives us a better picture of how the world could be the, the next step, the next development, it's not going to happen from another pop psychology book. Oprah doesn't have a new show coming out that I'm aware of. Like We're not going to pick this up from just broader society trying to think of how can we make things better. I mean, it's great. I mean, listen, read, do all that stuff. But root yourself in the way of Jesus because that is where we get the best picture of how the world could possibly be. Last thing. The gospel of Jesus is not tied to a particular culture. I think that is so important for us to understand. The way of Jesus is not tied to a particular culture. In fact, it must be freshly understood in every culture that the gospel enters into. It's not just ours. It's not just uh, America's. Rather, this is for across the globe, from China to Taiwan to Kenya to Germany, all around And in every single culture, they're going to pick up their Bibles and read things, and they're going to have some questions that you and I I might just gloss over. And then we'll have some issues They say, why do you have a problem with that? That makes sense for us. And that's great. That's wonderful. That's why we listen to voices, people of all shapes and sizes from all kinds of backgrounds, especially time periods. The way we live out our faith begins with Jesus and interfaces with people that look like us, people that don't look like us. People that sound like us, people that don't sound like us. And when we have that, when we understand that the way of Jesus comes out in every single culture in a different way, then we can pick up our Bibles and we can read it. We can say, oh, interesting. I wonder how what Paul is saying here makes sense to the way of Jesus, because my understanding of Jesus is that that doesn't sound quite Right, maybe the way I'm reading it, that whole submission thing maybe sounds a little harsh or weird. Okay, well dig in, take a step, and find some parts of the Bible that bring some of these tensions about. And when you do that, don't worry, oh my gosh, is the Bible true or anything? Of course it is. But it's probably not going to be that fourth grade understanding that you had. It's going to be an adult way of reading it. And living in that tension will find you some major strength. So, may we be people, may we be people who find freedom in the way of Jesus, that we find liberation through submission to him. May we be people that find a mutuality both in our homes, with one another in this room, and even to those outside of this room, those who we feel like might even threaten us, that we can do what Jesus asks of us, which is to go further and to love them and to take care of them and to seek their good in all things.